0: Well, I guess we're all honorary Presbyterians since we got sprinkled on the way to church today. I love it. I'm glad that you guys are here. <clears throat> we had a um, there's a few brave souls here um, who weren't just here today, but uh, Friday night we had a gathering called the Secret Church. 63,000 people around the United States and I think 50 different countries uh, for um, from 6 p.m. till about, what was it? About, it was about 1 a.m. before we got out of here, of Bible study and just conversation about how does the gospel make sense in a global context? Because we live in a world where there's a variety of answers to any big question. If you ask someone who's an animist who worships nature and worships their ancestors or an atheist or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu... Um, there's a lot of different answers out there. And uh, I think the popular way for us to kind of conceive of world religions, we talked about this, is that they're kind of like a big mountain. Everybody's got their own approach. And when we all get to the top, we're all going to find out we're worshiping the same God. That's not true. That's not true because there's very different answers uh, that that, um, Christianity gives to life's most ultimate questions. And here's the thing that really struck me. We we had, um, I think it was a 152-page workbook that we worked through in one evening. It we were flying. It was, I don't think I've ever listened that fast in my life. And I have two daughters. And so um, that's saying something. Uh, it was quick, man. We were moving. And uh, what really struck me is when you look at the world's religions, Christianity is the only religion where we have a personal relationship with God. Animists don't. They, they fear the spirit world. Muslims sure don't. They just fear Allah. They don't relate to God. A lot of Hindus have 330 million gods. B- Buddhists don't believe that God is personal. It's just kind of this thing that's out there. And atheists have no God but themselves. And so there's, we're really in a really unique situation and setting in the economy of the world's religions because we have a personal God. And yet here's the thing. Uh, most of you have grown up in church and you know this, but you kind of live like God is so big and so transcendent that He doesn't care about your stuff. We think that God is remote and detached and uninvolved, and God is so transcendent and huge, and He is. But we go beyond that to think that He ignores our situation, that He's so high and lifted up, that the stuff that we have to deal with is so beneath Him that He is just unmoved and uncaring. Perhaps in your darker days and your sadder moments, and' the not best moments of life, you lay in your bed at night and you point your prayers at the ceiling and you feel like they don't get any higher. And you go, why would the God of the universe be concerned about my junk? And we know that it's not true. That we have a personal God who relates to us. And I'm so glad this morning to be able to direct your attention to Genesis 18. Because in our passage this morning, I think that... Kind of perverted view of a God who is transcendent to the exclusion of His personal involvement in our life. That view is going to get exploded. We're going to take we're going to take the bat of the Bible and knock that idea of God out of the park this morning. And so I hope that you'll join me in um, Genesis 18. Uh, we're going to look at verses one through fifteen, but we're going to start with verses one through eight. <clears throat> and as good Baptists, we believe that there are two ordinances. Uh, the lord's supper and baptism we uh, celebrate we observe the lord's supper but i'm going to shock you guys this morning because you're going to find out something else that jesus did that you didn't know about it's called the lord's lunch we're going to observe the lord's lunch in genesis chapter 18 verses 1 3 have you heard of the lord's lunch before you've heard of the lord's supper i want you to look with me and i want you to see i want you to observe the lord's lunch Then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and he bowed to the ground and then he said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not go on past your servant, let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and Rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. And this is why, uh, this is why you can have pa- you pass by your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, "Do as you have said." So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, "Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread." And meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf, and he gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had had prepared and he set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. Now I got to get this out of the way because my wife is going to get me for this if I don't say it. Did you notice that Abraham said, hey, I'm going to bring you bread. And then he ran into the kitchen and said, hey, make some bread. Okay. So let's just get that out of the way. I do that all the time. Hey, you want to come over for dinner? Hey, hey sweetie, we got people coming over for dinner. Um, so listen, Abraham's a man just like me. Thank God. All right. So that's a good thing. <clears throat> Here's the deal. In this, <laughs> in this passage, we see that, that perverted view of God where God is detached and uncaring. We see it blown up. That is a perspective. Uh, that is a heresy called deism that God kind of as this unmoved creator kind of winds up the little wind-up toy and then he kind of lets it go that's what he did with creation he wound it all up he got he got the energy to get it moving and then he kind of lets it unwind and kind of run around and he started it but he doesn't really get involved And this episode combats that heresy and i love it because it proves that that famous theologian Bette midler is wrong god doesn't just watch from a distance he comes down and he gets involved personally with his people. He doesn't stand aloof and watch from afar, but he is personal. And how much more intimate do you get than having a meal with someone? You want to know who you're really good friends with? You know, yeah, I, got, I got 5,000 Facebook friends. Okay, let's let's ask this question. How many people have you shared a meal with? Not 5,000 people, but those people that you've shared a meal with are probably those people that are your most intimate allies. And so what does the text say about God's involvement in life? Look at 18, 1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. And boy, is that simple statement pregnant with all kinds of meaning. This is no surprise for New Testament believers because the most cardinal and irreducible tenet of our faith is that God came down and incarnated himself in the person of Christ to relate to a lost and dead and spiritually wandering people. And God does the same thing in the New Testament. He came down and he interacted with mankind. Now, there's some surprise that's involved here. There should probably be, maybe if you've got a King James, maybe there's a behold there. Abraham is chilling out in the heat of the day. It is too hot to work. And so he's in the shade by his tent, hanging out. And then it says all of a sudden, uh, he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. He didn't say he saw three men off in the distance. He watched them walking. There is the idea that, you know, they're not there one moment and then boom, pow, they're there. They show up. We don't know exactly what Abraham knows. Uh, we know as we read on in the passage and get the greater context that one of these three visitors is the Lord and that two of them are angels that are accompanying him. Uh, that becomes very important uh, in the context. Now, we don't know what Abraham did. Uh, what Abraham knew and when he knew it. But we do know that here in the scripture, he refers to one of those three people as the Lord. Now, whether that was at the moment that he knew it or when he goes back to record it and it gets written down, there's some kind of insight that there's something really significant happening here. And I think that understanding that one of these people just ain't like the others explains a little bit of the crazy hospitality. Because listen, you don't kill the fattened calf and like cook it up, like there's no microwaves. So like when he asks them to stay, it's hours. I mean, they're killing the cow, trimming the fat, cooking it up, and he's providing a royal feast for these people. So instead of being far removed, what does God do? God eats a meal with Abraham. He allows Abraham to serve him. I love this because this is the only Pre incarnate meal that God ever eats. God shows up in these, uh, we call them theophanies, these pre incarnation appearances of God. God shows up in these theophanies and everybody offers God food. That just proves, man, everybody in the, the Bible is Baptist, you know? It's a good thing. But everybody, when God shows up, they provide him food, but God refuses to eat and he says for it to be burnt and offered up as a sacrifice. This is the only place in the entire Bible before Jesus' incarnation where God eats a meal. And that just kind of goes to prove this point. It's not something that we talk about a lot and it's not necessarily a major tenet of the Bible, but there's an intimacy present and Abraham is the only person in the entire scripture from the table of contents to the maps is the only person who is referred to specifically as God's friend god's friend that's the word that's used there's only three passages that talk about this specifically it's not even referred to here in genesis 18 but if you go to james chapter 2 verse 23 second chronicles chapter 20 verse 7 or isaiah 41 verse 8 they all make reference to abraham as the friend of god That's just a really cool way to balance out this amazing, glorious transcendence of God with this intimate, personal relatability of who God is, that he is uh, a friend. And while that is specifically applied to Abraham, by extension, as Abraham's children, it applies to us too. God is no longer angry with us. He looks at us through Christ and has adopted us as his sons and daughters. So this is amazing condescension, that the creator of all of creation, the the God who made the DNA that made that cow good eating, is going to sit and eat with his creation. He's going to be the friend of sinners. He's going to dine with his creatures. The thing is, it's more than just the Lord's lunch. It's kind of in business terms what we would call a lunch and learn because God just didn't want some takeout. He came down because he had some things to tell people. And so as the conversation around the dinner table begins to get a little bit more personal, we learn about the Lord's mission. We learn about the Lord's mission. And it says this very clearly in verses 9 through 15. So he comes down and he has this lunch, which tells us really important things about the nature of God and his character. But then we... Don't just see the lunch? We learn about his mission. Look with me at verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, Abraham answered. The Lord said, so now it becomes really clear. It's not just three people. It's not just them. Verse, thir- uh, verse 10, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, this is more proof that we're dealing with Baptists here. Now, Sarah was listening or eavesdropping at the entrance of the tent behind them. Abraham and Sarah were old in this is, I guess, the politically correct way to say it, getting on in years. Sarah had past the age of childbearing, which means what? She had gone through menopause. And she had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed. What's your Bible say? She laughed how? Out loud. (laughs) That was a good one. She laughed to herself. After I have become shriveled up, my womb is desiccated, it's not vital anymore, after I have become shriveled up and my Lord is old too, will I have delight? All that's taking place in the tent, back out to the lunch. But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Husbands, be careful when you get asked a question about your wife. Okay, like Abraham doesn't know because like all this is happening in the tent. Abraham has no idea and the Lord just asked him a straight up legit question. And like, we don't get an answer from Abraham. He's like, uh, I don't know. So the Lord asked Abraham, it's one of those questions from God that we have to ponder. Why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Now, did Sarah say that? No, God didn't just hear what she was thinking. He actually interpreted accurately What was going on in her mind? Verse 14, I love this. Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. But Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But the Lord replied, no. you did laugh. You did laugh. We learn about the Lord's mission. And what do we see the Lord's mission is in Genesis chapter 18? He is coming to make a promise that he is going to bless them with the child of promise. And in that, it becomes, it becomes very clear that uh, the Lord, he reigns over life. He reigns over life. He is sovereign over life. He controls life. Listen, any great ruler can promise you riches and lands. You know, Donald Trump could give you riches and lands. It's within his power to give that to you. Now, he's not, um, but he could. Any great ruler who has power that he can share or goods that he can pass on can do that. What kind of ruler can promise you a child? Biologically conceived. Only God can do that. And so he's demonstrating how he reigns over life. But if you continue into Genesis chapter 19, the Lord stays with Abraham and the two angels go on. And do you know where they go to? They go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And guys, let me just tell you, it's not a G-rated story when you get to Genesis 19. It's wicked. It's vile. It's corrupt. And it's just the kind of thing that our politicians would absolutely love to legislate. And so what happens is in Genesis 18, God is demonstrating how he, is, uh, how he reigns over life, but then chapter 19 shows how he is sovereign over death because the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is so egregious that the cities are destroyed. So he comes to talk about life and to say that that promise that he had made decades ago about a son being born now has a timeline. Now, the clock is ticking. He made the promise decades ago, but now we can start our watches. We can crank up our engines and we can get ready because the child of promise is coming. Now, up to this point, Sarah has remained kind of off camera. She's certainly one of the major actors in the play. She just hasn't had any stage time. Her job has been making bread in the kitchen and eavesdropping on the conversation. And so she now kind of comes into uh, the, the limelight. She thought that she was safely concealed, observing without being observed. And for her, when she hears the promise, the promise is the problem. The promise is the problem. Once she hears his mission is to bestow life, what does Sarah do? She laughs. She laughs to herself. Why does she laugh? Because there's just a ton of time That has gone by. If you know the story, the promise was made uh, 25 years before uh, God acted. And so they hear the promise and they get very excited. Man, we need to get the nursery ready. Let's paint the room, let's buy the furniture, and no baby. So years go by, and then they think, well, maybe God needs a little bit of help. And so Sarah offers her slave girl, Hagar, and says, perhaps God's design is for you to have, for you to have the son, Abraham, through a surrogate. And, and God says, no. In chapter 17, verse 16, he clarifies and he tells Abraham, no, it will be through Sarah that you will have a child. Now, it's very clear in, in chapter 17 that God tells Abraham this. We don't know exactly how many years it's been. We know it's 25 years before the promise finds its fulfillment. So sometime before promise and fulfillment, 1716, God says, no, it's going to be through Sarah. And I just have to wonder, because Abraham is a, a, a husband just like I am. He knows the disappointment that there has been, that God has not delivered on his promise. And when God comes and says, no, it's going to be through Sarah, did he tell Sarah Or did he hold back to prevent her from additional disappointment? He maybe treasured it up in his heart and hoped that God was really going to be true to his promise, but he wasn't about to speak it and to claim it because then there's an accountability and there's the potential for more disappointment on top of the disappointment that is already there. Regardless, we don't know what Abraham said or didn't say to his beloved wife. Regardless of what happened, Sarah looks at her age and she looks at her circumstances and she says, no way, no way. Now, Abraham's age is definitely a factor too. But we know in Genesis 24, Genesis 25, once Sarah dies, Abraham gets remarried to Keturah and he has kids with her. So he may be old, but things are working for him. (laughs) And so the issue, the main issue is Sarah knows this is a biological and natural issue impossibility. It's not going to happen. It is not possible. It's because she's focused on the wrong thing. She's focused on the obstacles and she's not focused on the creator of all life who can say it and you can take it to the bank. Well, now the visitor, this mystery man, clearly reveals himself because Sarah, again, has been off camera and while she has hidden herself behind the tent, her thoughts and her attitudes and uh, the th- secret things of her heart are clearly laid bare to this mystery man. And so we go back out to the lunch. And God says to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And when she, you know, what's she doing? She's eavesdropping on the whole thing. And she thinks she's safe. Now, It's not just that she's listening to this conversation between Mr. Man and Abraham. Now she's the topic of conversation. And she comes running out of the tent and when she is confronted with her sin of disbelief, what does she do? She lies. I didn't laugh. Guys, here's the thing. Not believing God is a sin. Disbelief is a sin because it implies that God is a liar, that what he says cannot be trusted. And here's the thing that's so bad. Disbelief leads to other sins. Private disbelief, laughing at God, when confronted publicly leads to bold-faced lying to the face of God. It, disbelief is never simple. It's always complex. And here's the thing. I go, Sarah, you've got to get better at this whole lying thing. You could have at least made excuses. Say so, no, I didn't laugh. I was clearing my throat. No, I, I didn't laugh. I was thinking about something really funny that Ishmael did. I was giggling at that. She, she didn't even try to make excuses. She just bold-faced lied to God himself. said, yeah, hey, so I don't know how you know that I laughed because I did it in my mind, not with my mouth. And you're asking my husband a question that he has no clue about because he didn't hear me laugh. You're saying, why did Sarah laugh? I didn't laugh. If you're going to lie to God... Now, if you're going to laugh at God, don't lie because he sees through it. There is no fooling him. And after asking Abraham this penetrating question, why did Sarah laugh? He follows it up with another question in verse 14. He says, is there anything too difficult or too wonderful for the Lord? What an amazing question. Is there Anything too difficult or wonderful for the Lord. Yes, the obstacles are indeed great. This promise of a child is physically and naturally impossible. Yes, you are past childbearing age. Do you know what the truth is, friends? It is not about you in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. It is not about you because God's grace always overrules nature and it becomes proof that only God could do this because it doesn't make any sense to have an explanation for this episode in any other way. And so here's the question for you. What are you not trusting God for? It's not just religious people. It's mean, not just Sarah. Sarah, Sarah went to Hebrew school, you know, Sarah knew the Old Testament, you know, knew, the, knew, knew God, new things that were going on. After all, Abraham is blindly following God and moving cross country. What is it that you're not trusting God for? It could be that you have gone to church all your life and you've heard us talk about salvation, that God saves sinners. But you go, you know, if God, if God really knew everything that I did, if God knew how wicked and vile and dirty my heart is, he wouldn't want me on his team. That's not true. He's already said that he does. That's why he sent his son to die for your sins. And if you will admit that you are a sinner and and acknowledge that Jesus is the solution to man's greatest problem, the Bible says you will be saved. Believe God for salvation. Some of you have, have lived with yourself long enough that you know what your besetting sins are. You know what your personal struggles are. And some of you are just resigned to be a curmudgerty, diggerty-doo for the rest of your days. Because God might save me, but he sure can't change me. He's not going to... I've never had one ounce of joy, and I'm never going to have an ounce of joy. I've never been kind, and I'm never going to be kind. I've never been a sweet personality. I'm never going to be a sweet personality. This is just who I am. Baloney. God can give you victory over sin. It's, It's the issue of, are you trusting him for that? Or are... Are you really your biggest issue? Or is God the biggest issue? Maybe there's a circumstance that you find yourself in, which is way above your pay grade to explain the mysteries of life. And why does God allow this? Or why am I in this situation that I don't want to be in? I can't tell you that the circumstance that you're in is not what God wants for you. It might be that this situation is the thing that he needs to form Christ in you. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It means that his ways are much higher and that we have to trust him in our difficulty as well as trust him on the sunshiny days. We have to, well, it's sunshiny now. We have to trust him on the soggy days of life too. And Maybe there's a family issue, you know, mother and daughter, father and son brothers who are irreconcilable. And you know what? You have burnt that bridge and you're well aware of it. And God can't fix that. Yes, he can. And it's through admitting that you're a sinner and whoever it is that you're not reconciled is to. And somebody has to have the bravery to be humble enough to cross the bridge of repentance and say, I'm sorry for it to happen. God can fix Whatever, maybe there's a healing of your body or of your heart or of your mind and you just say this is just the way it's going to be and you are disbelieving that God has come to give you a life that is abundant and overflowing and you're content to have beans and franks for the rest of your life when God says the Filet of Fellowship is available for you. If you will open your heart to Him and believe, He will help personal relationships that are messed up. A friend that used to be closer than a brother is now avoided whenever you see him in the grocery aisle because it's just going to be awkward. God can fix it. And the reason that he doesn't is because we limit God to doing just what we think he can do instead of everything that he's capable of. And so we don't truly think of God as being on our side. We don't really think of God as being our friend. Maybe he was Abraham's friend, but he's not mine. And so like Sarah and like Adam and Eve before her, we try to hide our sin. And we'll lie if people ask us, why did you do this? Oh, I didn't do that. So we pretend, we come to church and we pretend like we're living right. But we don't believe that he will provide for us. We don't believe that he will protect us. We don't believe that he will work all things together for our good. Because God's definition of our good and God, God's definition of our good and our definition of our good are miles apart. Can we just admit that perhaps you're wrong? That God's good really is being formed in you because he is faithful and we know that we can trust him. See, here's, here's the situation. As humans, we, we want it now. We want to know right now what God is doing. And you may not discern what God is up to In this present moment. But if you allow God's work. To gestate in your life. For say oh maybe nine months. You might be surprised. At what ends up being delivered to you. That's what happened to Sarah. No way God. Don't tell God. No way. You will be. Surprised. What he gives to you. Our third and final point. We don't see this in the text but we see it in other texts throughout the scriptures and i love this it is magnificently sweet uh, juicy sweet like running down your chin sweet when you bite into it that god's grace is far greater than we can ever imagine god's grace and there's the train horn for emphasis um god's grace is far greater than we can imagine listen here what is the summary of what has just happened in Sarah's relationship with the Lord? He has come and told her a glorious truth, that she, at this time next year, will have a kid. And she says, Pfft. that's the Hebrew um, for that. It's really hard to pronounce, just, Pfft. you got to get the lips moving. And then when confronted with her sin, what does she do? She bold-faced lies. Parents, have you ever had a kid that's lied to you? it is not going to be good for somebody. And it, it, it's not going to be the parent who has a bad day. You know, because like for some of us, if we've had a friend that's lied to us, that may be the only thing that we need to break off the friendship. Okay. Sarah has just disbelieved God and then added to that by laughing in, laughing in his face and lying to his face. And so God would be well within his prerogative to cut her off, to curse her, and to remove any blessings that He's promised her. And that's exactly what he does, isn't it? No. No. Instead of punishment, what does she receive? Three things. Number one, she receives faith. She receives faith. Um, While our story really only reports what happens in this immediate incident, we know from other passages of Scripture that this uh, conflict... This episode engendered, caused faith to be born in Sarah's life. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. It'll be on the screen. It says this, by faith. By faith. Even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Sarah walks out of the tent, an unbeliever. And she walks back in, believing God. What has happened? She has had an encounter that has changed her. And she has gone from being a person with no faith, laughing and lying in God's face, to a person who receives the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, once she considers the one who has made the promise to be faithful. That's amazing. And I love this because we tend to think that Old Testament believers, New Testament believers are so different. But Abraham and Sarah trusted God and looked forward to a promised son, Isaac. New Testament believers look back and see the glorious fulfillment of that greater son, Jesus Christ. And so our circumstances, our faith is the same. uh, The essence is the same. The perspective is just different. Looking forward, or looking backwards, because the promise was not just Isaac. It was this great and mighty nation of kings and rulers and blessings to the end of the earth that never were fulfilled in Isaac, but in Isaac's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, Sarah received laughter. She received laughter. That's Isaac's name. It means a good belly laugh, Sarah's laughter in chapter 18 was the problem, but in chapter 1, when she holds this bouncing baby boy, it is the solution. Her unbelieving and scoffing laughter gets transformed into the laughter of joy and thanksgiving. Not beautiful. Laughing in derision now becomes laughing at the unconceivable bounty of God. Number three, Sarah received. Praise. She received praise. In first Peter chapter three, verse six, Sarah is held up as an example of faith from Genesis chapter 18. And if there's anything that we have seen in Genesis eighteen, it is not that Sarah is an example of faith. But I want you to listen, actually I'm going to read first Peter three, five and six. It's not going to be on the screen. It says this for in the past. The holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 5, verse 6: just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and are, are not frightened by anything alarming. Where in the world did Sarah call Abraham Lord? Only one place. Only one place hidden in the tent, having a dialogue with herself, saying, is it possible for me to have a kid when I'm past childbearing age and my master as well is advanced in years? Here's the most beautiful thing about this whole thing. is uh, We're told that she modeled a gracious submission by calling Abraham master. And in Genesis eighteen twelve, in the midst of her laughing at God and then lying about her disbelief, God doesn't choose to memorialize her lack of faith. He pulls out the one little bitty tiny thread of faithfulness and he puts it down in 1 Peter 3.6 to be held up as an example for all time of someone who trusted God. So the promise this morning, no matter how much you don't trust him, he will remember your faith as small and as tiny as it is if it is placed in the right place object and that object is not you it's him so this morning don't be disbelieving believe trust him follow him because the blessings that god promises to his children only come when we trust him and obey him would you pray with me please god we acknowledge how much we need you to challenge us and god we crawl off the altar and we make ourselves in charge of our own life we make ourselves lords and masters of our own destiny and god we ruin ourselves when we do this we allow our joy to be stolen we allow you to become distant and god we need you desperately you don't assault us and uh, force yourself upon us, you are a gracious king and master, and you only come where you are welcome. So God, I pray today that with your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and your love, that you will overcome the ramparts of our defensiveness, that you will allow us to let down the drawbridge of our own sovereignty. And in our hearts, you will allow us to bow before you and to trust you. You never promise us that it will be easy. But you promise us that it will always indeed be good. Because you are good. So God, we trust you. Imperfectly, partially. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray.